0: show the guys chat with author frank joseph about his latest book before
1: atlantis
0: okay guys welcome back to uh this week's grime America* show thanks for listening uh we'll be chatting with frank joseph uh, a little later on but uh first as always with me is graham how's it going graham
2: hey man i'm doing good yeah i'm all set to go to mars
0: Right on, buddy. You got, yeah, we, we uh, did your video last week. You got, so you're all sealed up to you. When are they deciding?
2: I don't know, but I, I got a confirmation email saying that my uh, application has been accepted.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, so they didn't tell you like, I think there was like 170,000 or something when it closed. Did it, oh, is yeah, it closed that's
2: yet? No. Oh, yeah, it's closed, yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we did your video, of course. I was actually going through a bunch of videos there a little earlier, checking out some of your competition.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. And how how is it? I should have, I probably should have went on a little longer in the in the uh, video, but you kind of cut me off short. So.
0: Yeah, I actually, I totally cut you off short.
2: Oh, compared to other ones.
0: Yeah. Well, like no, actually, I cut you off like mid sentence.
2: Oh yeah, but yeah, but. Oh, I guess I didn't even edit that, did I? I should have no. just
0: edited it. No. I I, now. I'll figure out a way to edit I Look, it. I
2: figure, I figure like, if, if that's going to be the make it or break it, then it doesn't matter, right? I mean, I just want to make it through the next uh, 50,000. I want to make it up to, like, maybe the top 25,000 applicants or something like that.
0: So you no, don't I'm really want to go to Mars? You just want oh, yeah. yeah, to get close to going no, to Mars? No, of
2: course. Of course I do. But, I, you know, I don't want to have all these expectations
0: and then be all disappointed, so. Do you want to hear uh, some of your competition? This is going to be... The guy you go with, probably.
2: Oh, okay. You've picked out my team?
0: I've picked out... I think I've picked out your team. Okay. But you're only going with one girl, unfortunately. Oh, so tough break. what? Three, three
2: guys and one girl? Yeah. Oh, thanks, buddy.
0: Yep. Hey, man, keep you on your toes. Okay, so uh, this guy's video is pretty uh, intense, to say the least. Uh, he's Chinese, so you're not going to be able to understand anything he says either. <laughs>
3: Hello,
0: I'm not adding the music. What? I'm not adding the music. That's part of the video.
1: Is he dancing?
0: No, but he's got, like, a bunch of crazy shit. All these, like, clips of planets and spaceships launching in the background all going on really? at the same time. Really? Oh my god. And it's like an over-the-top fucking documentary.
2: Are they picking, like, ESL? Like, well, Will I have to learn other languages to go?
0: I don't know. This dude Okay, okay. okay. I'll send you this link, (laughs) man. This guy's video is looks professionally done. Okay,
2: okay. Okay.
0: It's probably some rich Chinese kid, because seriously, that video must have cost like ten grand to put that thing together. Really? Unless he's just a whiz kid or something.
2: What what was ours? Like twenty sec thirty thirty-five seconds and like honestly
0: zero editing. And you can hear like boats driving by in the background. Of ours? Yeah. Really? And you can see my daughter's little slip and slide. (laughs) 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 So do you want to hear the other guy you're going with first, or do you want to hear the girl? Do you want to save the girl for last?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, you got to bear with me because I have to go to a different page. And I have to do this all on my phone because my fucking PC won't link to – I can't go to the videos on my PC. It pops up with this stupid fucking tank Mm -hmm. ad.
2: A tank ad. What yeah, you mean? for this tank. Like a military ad?
0: No, it's like this tank game. Uh, so this guy's video is the shit. This guy is getting in there for sure. This guy seems like he'd be fun to hang around with too. So. And he speaks English. What if you go with three people and none of them, they all speak different languages? Well, that's what I was just going to say. Like, do
2: I have to learn another language now to so go? going to be
0: like fucking...
2: Signing or like... <laughs> Like playing charades Send all day? a
0: bunch of people to Mars that can't even fucking communicate.
2: Okay, let's hear this guy.
0: <laughs> Again, <laughs> I'm not playing the music.
3: Do it Martian style. Martian style. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to become a Martian. Reading Stephen Hawking books, man, space is fucking awesome. NASA told me that I have to be a US citizen, so I settled for the dream of CEO or president. But then Mars One came, a small Dutch company that made all my career plans change. It's like Big Brother meets Alien meets The Hunger Games. My parents told me to forget it, but my dream remained. (laughs) I have zero shame
1: Programmer Entrepreneur That's me Read my CV Scientist ACF Finalist You need me On your team So we can make a difference For humanity
0: Do it Martian
2: oh my god Fucking these guys aren't amazing, even answering. man.
0: like i want i almost want to get that guy on the show yeah
2: that was pretty funny
0: he's from like uh where is he from here let me see he's not he's from uh bulgaria yeah
2: that makes and
0: sense. he wears uh yeah. he wears a full face um uh motorcycle helmet the entire time sometimes he, oh no he doesn't he takes it off a couple times but the video is like over the top too I'll save all these so you can watch them. Yeah. So, do you want to play yours now, and compared to those ones? No, or, I don't want to
2: play mine. Or, yeah, I don't even want you to play mine at all.
0: What? So. No, no, it's all cute. No, because
2: no, no, cause you're supposed to answer three questions. So,
0: what? You so answered three questions.
2: Monty Python skit or something. Answer me these questions, three.
0: Oh, they didn't answer the questions.
2: No. Okay, so go to the go to the woman now, please.
0: <laughs> the, but the. the you did. You, we should. We should. Rob. We could. Oh, you, we can't redo it. Oh, well, this one will make you feel. Uh, this one will make you feel a little bit better you, about your video, I think. And uh, I, I think she's like fucked up on something. Oh. And it's like all different little, like, little clips cut together. It's weird. so.
2: So I can't for for the listeners. I can't see this. We're we're recording non locally today. So i um, This is all. New to a surprise. You? laugh easily I like it when everybody is in on the joke when it's more like a play you know uh, between you and me
0: she's got a parrot on her shoulder
2: oh nice and it's 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 fun I win if I get on this you're gonna watch me chew I'm gonna be good friends why am I doing this um because I can't imagine anything i would want to do more oh my I god
1: i have a list of qualities that just comes off as a list what okay okay things i've things heard of enough it? first name is
0: what's the matter you don't like it
2: yeah it's okay i can't see it so it's hard to hard for me to get the gist of it there's all this music playing in the background and she's getting all like philosophical with the
0: yeah no yeah she's like tripping order, balls like. but she's not she's not terrible looking
2: Oh, you can. T- oh, that's, yeah, you can see her. I guess yeah, it's a video, right? Yeah, okay.
0: it's a, yeah they're videos. Oh. I, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That rap dude's video looks like an old Vanilla Ice video. <laughs> so, can we played yours now? Uh,
1: well, the listeners
0: no. have we've they've been following us through this the whole time. I gotta hear you. Right oh, now. fuck! All right, just
2: just maybe cut it off or something. Okay, I'll just. It's really lame. I, I just we did it one take and we just sent it off. So. There's no music in the background.
0: <laughs> I could like
2: uh, can you play something in the background just to make it sound a little more professional? I could
0: put some music in the background on post production.
2: Okay, just uh, let's do it because Mysterious Universe talked about this quite a bit. Did you hear their? Did you hear them ranting about it? Yeah. The Mars, the Mars death trap. And I thought it was quite funny because it was right after uh, I had posted my application, and they were just going on and on about it. Like, they they think that people don't really want to go. Like, if I got chosen, I would go, of course. I would go. You
0: can go for your Wouldn't country. Wouldn't you want
2: to be, like, the, the, one of the only ones uh, in history to be able to, to actually, like, live in space? No. No? I like uh, it here. Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. Fuck. Ready? Right, right. Here we
0: yeah. go. Ugh. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Here it is, guys.
2: So, I'm Graham, and I want to go to Mars not only for the adventure, but I want to go for the challenge. I want to help humanity reach the stars and reach our full potential. Now, I've got a sense of humor. I'm quick, witted. See? (laughs) Welcome, my I Halfway. I can make groups of people laugh. If you want an example of my sense of humor, just go to the Grimerica Show podcast and listen to that (laughs) for a bit. Now... (laughs) Now, I'm the perfect candidate for Mars because I'm fit spiritually, health, uh, emotionally, and physically. And I'm a- oh. That's it. <laughs>
0: Sorry just cut you off. Well, oh, my, did geez. you already submit it without like cutting it out? Huh? Did you submit it without editing it?
2: Yeah.
0: So it's just nice. That's, fuck it.
2: If it's going to be about the editing job, then fuck it, right?
0: Really? And I mumbled something on the way out. To, I didn't realize.
2: <laughs> I didn't realize how loud the bolts were in the background, though.
0: <laughs> oh well. Oh well. It shouldn't be about that anyway.
2: No, exactly. Hey, I answered the three fucking questions.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: So that'll that'll get me through the first round right off the bat. Well, the,
0: uh, well, the and
2: my and my Red Planet Diner shirt that should get me through the second round.
0: No doubt. Well, um, we could link to the mega video.
2: No, no. Okay, okay. What the fuck, man. Okay. No, it's okay. One day maybe I'll make it public or something. I think I can change the settings on my application or something. Beauty. All right. So, what else? Let's talk about Audible. Sounds good. Um, I just got my uh, little notification. I have two free credits available in my Audible account, and that's always exciting. <laughs> so, hey, I found a book. That I'm sure must be new here because I was gonna buy this book um, in print, but now I found it here, and it's uh, it's called Wizard: The Life. What is it called here? Wizard: The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. So it's like 22 hours long. Basically, I'm gonna click on this and get it for free, and then I'll I'll tell you about some other ones in my wish list here too, because this is what this is. These are the ones I'm trying to decide on what to read, listen to, right? So I've got Jim Mars, Our Occulted History. That's uh, Do the Global Elite Conceal Ancient Aliens? I, I don't even know if I've heard that one. I think that one just came out.
0: Yeah, I've never we heard of get, that.
2: We should get Jim Mars on here. Have you, ta- have you uh, got him? Uh, got a response from him yet?
0: No, I don't even know if I've emailed him.
2: Okay, then we've got The Rise of the Fourth, fourth Reich, which is also uh, Jim Mars. And that's another one about secret societies that threaten to take over America.
0: Yeah, I've actually got that on mine now. That's what I got with my last credit last month. Oh, yeah? Have you listened to it yet? No, I think I listened to like maybe three or four minutes. Yeah. I'm so busy with between all the podcasts I listen to and everything else. It's hard
2: to find the time. Imagine trying to read all these. That's the thing, right? So have you? Uh, does he narrate that himself, Jim Mars? Because he, he sounds pretty cool.
0: Uh, let me check.
2: Okay, and then I've got uh, here Thoughts are Things. That's the owner's manual for the human condition. That should be interesting. Uh, Eyes of the Sphinx. The Sphinx.
0: Is that Eyes the Von Daniken of, one? Yeah,
2: that's the Von Daniken one. <laughs> yeah, that's actually and,
0: good, that one. It's so, yeah, hard to say how some of it's pretty out there.
2: And then uh, Rick Strassman's DMT, the spirit molecule, that's on there and then graham hancock entangled that's also on there so i mean th- these these are just the ones on my wish list so i mean that's a pretty good selection of books there i'm sure uh our listeners will be uh familiar with most of those
0: yep and uh of course if you you guys should try it out it's uh it's great you get a free month you know risk-free uh go to audibletrialcom trial.com slash grimerica they're going to give you a free book a free month uh at reduced prices and then if you keep it great if you don't whatever and uh that's uh, a good way to support the show as well
2: hey uh, hey i just did a uh, a search for uh frank joseph our upcoming guest too and uh it, geez i should have done this before uh radio tv program underwater pyramids of rock lake with frank joseph that's on there what's that what The inaudible Oh, is it? Yeah, Real, realms of the unreal, synchronicities with Frank Joseph.
0: That'd have been good to listen to. Before. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. We read uh, we read before Atlantis, so that's yeah, uh, that's yeah. his latest and greatest, anyway. So that's I think that's what uh, that's what it, we'll we'll be talking about the most in the interview. So.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. All right, man.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I got much else. You want to just uh, should we just jump into the interview?
2: Yeah, let's do that.
0: Okay guys, uh, I hope you enjoy the, uh, our chat with Frank Joseph. uh with us here tonight we're going to be chatting with uh, Frank Joseph an author i believe he's got a dozen or so books out uh his most recent is Before Atlantis which was uh just fantastic i, I really uh i went into it kind of unprepared i hadn't really heard about it and and it it totally caught me off guard i, w- I was i was hooked within the first par- with within the first chapter Frank
2: Joseph uh he's been the editor-in-chief, or he was the editor-in-chief in, uh, of Ancient American Magazine from 93 to 2009. And like Darren said, he's the author of, uh, of several books. Um, the first one, the latest one being Before Atlantis, and that's uh, 20 Million Years of Human and Prehuman Cultures. And like you said, Darren, that was a fantastic book. He's also written uh, The Destruction of Atlantis, Gods of the Ruins, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, Survivors of Atlantis. So um, it's great to have you here, Frank.
3: Well, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, we'd uh, we'd like to thank you for coming on, of course. And um, I suppose first off, maybe you could you could just tell us uh, the basic outline uh, of the book for those of us who haven't read it. Uh, well, I've read it, but for our listeners, of course, who haven't read it. And uh, kind of tell them what, what, where, you, where you come from and, and uh, what brought you to, to write about this.
3: Well, in writing before Atlantis, I wanted to try to come up with some answers to questions that had been bothering me all my adult life. And one of the questions is, what is it that makes human beings so different than all other animals? The other questions are, why is it and how is it that we make civilization and no other animals do? And the third question to be is, how come we always destroy our civilizations? <laughs> what is, what's going on? What is it that we can learn from this? Is this as a pattern or is it just we don't learn from the past? What is it? And the great thing about writing a book like Before Atlantis is I had no preconceived notions whatsoever I just went where the evidence took me. I did not start out with a theory. Everybody has a theory. It's no big deal. But I wanted to be able to, first of all, find the facts, as many facts as I could find, and then let some kind of a theory emerge, a conclusion rather than a theory, a conclusion emerge from the latest evidence. That book also was written almost entirely from material that I found, not in other books, but on the Internet. And the reason why is because I wanted the most up-to-date information on human evolution. That's what it deals with to a large extent. And there's a huge amount of really fundamental breakthroughs that are taking place so quickly that uh, the public can't even digest them. I mean, it's just thanks to the accelerating technology that's going on now, uh, our views of the past are really fundamentally changing sometimes literally from month to month if not week to week and sometimes things i were right i would be writing at the beginning of the book would be outdated by the time i'm coming to the end of it i have to go back to the beginning and say no that that information has now been invalidated by new theory or new uh finds that have been made
2: yeah i so, noticed i noticed that frank that um <clears throat> this is something i'm very interested in and exactly because of those questions that you just talked about. And I found that this book did that for me. It kind of wrapped this whole thing together and finally kind of put some some sort of global perspective on this whole thing.
3: I really wrote the book for, for you and for people like you and me. I didn't write for specialists. Uh, I don't pretend to be an archaeologist or anything like that. I'm a science reporter. That's my background in education and in experience so I take the work of, or the, the results of the people who have done all the hard work, as it were, and uh, I try to put them together in kind of a mosaic and a picture that all of us can understand. And um, so in that regard, I'm, I'm a reporter. I still am a reporter. The only, I guess, maybe original contribution that I've made to this, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, is that, uh, well, the book deals with the aquatic ape hypothesis, which is a very old theory. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks who believed that human beings and all life came out of the sea. This is really an amazing conclusion for people that lived over 2,000 years ago, 2,400 years ago. And I've followed that, and I have come to believe that the story of human evolution, as we're told in the schools, is fundamentally correct. But there's a twist a very important twist that is not discussed. And the evidence for this twist is, I feel, very strong and persuasive. This twist also is crucial to determining what we are and why we are what we are. Human beings can be godlike. You look at us as a species, we do godlike things. Our medicine, our science... Uh, We're able to extend our vision across the solar system and far beyond the Hubble telescope, the breakthroughs that we have in medicine and all the other great things we've done. And on a smaller scale, the the human compassion of one person for another is is really wonderful. And in that regard, humanity is a, a very blessed thing. But we are also capable of cruelties beyond anything any other animal has ever perpetrated. Mm-hmm. We are capable of mass destruction to the very forces that brought us into existence. We're capable of wiping out whole species and races. And what is, how is this possible that one animal, man, is capable, on the one hand, of doing these incredibly miraculous things, and on the other hand, these unspeakable cruelties. It goes back to uh, a question that's been asked, at least since the time of Goethe, in his immemorial story of Faust. There's a line in Faust where he says, Two souls dwell within me. Mm. One wants to tear away from the other one. And that really is the human dilemma. What accounts for that? And I think I have found a source for that human dilemma. And it goes back to our ancient, ancient origins. And that's what is tackled in the book. And this story of human evolution is, I think, correct, as I said, about two million years, about five million years ago, excuse me, about five million years ago. Our ancestors lived in the trees. We were an arboreal primate. And we had great time in the trees. It was safe. We just were uh, fruit eaters, vegetarians. Everything was for us. We were taking care of for us up in the trees. It was safe. We lived there for a long time. And then the environment changed. And the, uh, the forests that we lived in for so long became desiccated, and transformed into semi-arid areas close to being deserts, and we were driven out of the trees, and we had to live on the ground, which is a dangerous place. There are many other animals superior to what we were, predators. We began as scavengers now. It was a rough life, and the cooperation that we had had in the trees and the lack of competition really And the gentleness that we had there was now replaced by severe competition. Uh, Groups that had to, in order to survive, banded together and opposed other groups, had to fight over food. And we became an aggressive species. Now, that's the story, that basic story of evolution. But now here comes that twist that I mentioned. It would appear that our earliest ancestors, we're talking now really... About three million years ago, our earliest ancestors were confronted with the same challenge that confronts every single animal species on Earth, and that is when there is a major change in the environment, a major change. Nature says to the species that are confronted with this, adapt or die. And those species that do not adapt become extinct, and those species that adapt go on and become tougher and more intelligent versions of what their own ancestors were. And the challenge that our ancestors faced was massive flooding, which we now know definitely took place in mm-hmm. place in East Africa.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And this flooding now began to reduce these territories that our primate ancestors were dealing with to islands. Competition became extremely rough And they didn't have the same type of scavenging that was available to them before, or hunting, which they were beginning to develop. Now, in order to survive, they had to adapt to a semi-aquatic life. They had to find morsels along the seashore to eat. This change in diet was fundamental. And as this diet became uh, more and more available to them, the further they went out into the water this early human, pre-human species began to physically change. Just by going into the water, the the center of gravity shifted in our bodies, in our hominid bodies, not even quite hominid bodies, yet our primate bodies. Mm -hmm. We became buoyant. We found that now we were becoming gradually upright. This same process is taking place today before our very eyes, Amongst other primates, I'm, ta- I'm referring especially to the macaques, kind of little monkeys that live in Hokkaido in northern Japan. And these little monkeys, they live in a very cold area, and they live in these, they dwell in these uh, hot pools, these thermal pools. They spend a lot of time in the water. And these little primates now are beginning to walk upright because their center of of uh, <clears throat> gravity as it were in their bodies is also shifting and these macaques are able to walk upright and carry things in their hands the same process is taking place uh, again in east africa with the proboscis monkey which is a monkey that is also uh, undertaking an aquatic existence has developed a very large uh, and longer and thinner nose than other primates for swimming in the water it also is beginning to go upright so those people that, like myself, that believe in the aquatic ape hypothesis, and it still is a hypothesis, hardly even a theory, but a lot of information to back it up. Nonetheless, the aquatic ape hypothesis says that human being or rather pr- proto-human beings, primates, when challenged by the sea, began to walk upright because of the shift in the body weight's and also because of the necessity of carrying things in their hands. We see other aquatic animals like uh, otters, sea otters, for example, which also have very dexterous hands. There are those even terrestrial animals like the raccoons, which, uh, although although they're not aquatic animals, deal a lot in water. They also have developed very deaf and human-like hands. And it was this change which began to, gradually change us from being a strictly territorial animal. We were on the way to becoming an aquatic animal. This has taken place with other creatures like the dolphin. The dolphin's earliest ancestor, about 25 million years ago, was a dog-like creature, completely terrestrial. It, too, was challenged by an adaptation to marine existence, and it decided that it was going to adapt. Hmm. And it did adapt, and it went completely into the sea and became an aquatic animal as we know it today. Wow! We were on that same path. But what happened with us is that the sea retreated rapidly in East Africa. We now found ourselves bouncing back to a terrestrial existence again. So we began hmm. to distance ourselves from this uh, aquatic environment. We had some aquatic traits that we had developed, but we chose to go back to a terrestrial existence. So the only uh, original, if at all, contribution that I make to this theory is that I conclude that we have so many aquatic traits still with us today, and we can enumerate those later on in the program if we want, that I don't believe that we went through only one aquatic phase many millions of years ago. I believe that human beings are the outcome of a kind of an oscillation between the land and the sea, Hmm. that there were times when we were challenged by the return of the sea. We began to go back into the sea again to become aquatic. The sea retreated. We went back again to the land. I think this happened several times. It may be even going on today. There are island human populations like the Hawaiians, for example, that are developing aquatic traits that are not evident amongst uh, other peoples except those other also islanders. Uh, one that I'm thinking of, especially with the Hawaiian islanders, who spend, of course, a great deal of time in the water and always have for for many hundreds of years, is that they develop uh, blubber, body fat, more than other uh, human populations do. This is a a characteristic of marine life. We have something called, all humans have something called subcutaneous fat. It's blubber. And no other primate has subcutaneous fat to the degree that we have it.
0: Oh, Because they've got fur instead, I suppose.
3: Well, like chimpanzees, and apes, they have as much hair as we do. They're no hairier than we are. Our hairs are just as numerous as apes and chimpanzees, except our hair is much thinner. And they don't need subcutaneous fat because their hair is thicker. They use it for both cooling and for heating themselves up. And the subcutaneous fat that they have is just really hardly more than to be a little guard against their viscera and their internal organs. Our subcutaneous fat is completely different and matches the same type of blubber that is uh, self-evident in marine creatures like otters and dolphins and whales and things like that. And now here are the modern Hawaiian people that are also developing far more subcutaneous fat because they appear in the long process, to be on their way to becoming more of an aquatic species. And if you were to, say, dial into the future somehow and see what would become of the Hawaiian people if they continued over the next several hundreds of thousands or maybe a million years, how would they physically differ so much than other human populations? And that, I believe, is really strategic, is key to determining why and how We are so different than all other animals because we are part primate, definitely primate. We are definitely a land primate, no doubt about that. But we also have within us a great deal of the aquatic traits that are associated with dolphins and whales. And I think it's our our mixed hybrid ancestry that is responsible for our both lamentable and commendable characteristics we are a species in conflict, I believe, with our origins, and that explains why we do the things we do.
0: Some people uh, are still born with, like, webbed fingers and toes. Toes, I think, is more common.
3: Well, it's remarkable because between 7 and 9% of the human population, and that's a lot, have... Uh, webbed fingers and toes, hmm. and hmm. it's not an, an anomaly. That that's quite large, actually.
2: One of my first girlfriends remember, had webbed toes.
0: Yeah, I remember that. Well, back in the seventies.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but even today, I mean, even the ordinary human being, you have a a web between your thumb and forefinger, which no other primate has. Hmm. This is a residue. This is a remnant. When we had far more webbing than we have now, one of the most remarkable things that I found in in my research is that all human beings are born with gill slits that appear early in their pregnant in their infancy. That's remarkable, and that as the uh, the the child begins to develop in the mother's womb, these gills they fade away. They're not visible, but a small percentage, much smaller percentage of the human population, nonetheless, some individuals are still born with gills. That would indicate that we were seriously on the way to becoming what the dolphins and the whales have become. They were land animals. Another animal is the elephant, which is even closer to human beings in this regard. The elephant is now known was on its way to becoming a fully aquatic animal, like the dolphins or the porpoises. But its evolution was interrupted in the same way ours was. It made a U-turn and went back to being a terrestrial animal. Hmm. Nonetheless, the elephant has numerous aquatic traits. The elephants are superb swimmers. Elephants are known to swim more than a, uh, more than over 300 miles across open water, It's a a remarkable parallel with ourselves. The elephants, though, do not seem to be the same kind of conflicted creature that we have become. (laughs) And one of the other factors is we ate a lot of brain food. It's now understood that eating fish is, in fact, uh, brain food because fish has the fatty acids that make up the human brain. Most of your brain is made up of fatty acids. And people that are... um, Dieted mostly on fish do in fact experience a marginal increase in the capacity for intelligence, especially if they are young. There are now national studies and different unrelated countries that have come to the same conclusion and I think what happened was that in that that seminal period or periods where we were making that change from terrestrial to aquatic. We were ingesting a lot of brain food, and that stimulated uh, the development of human consciousness to the point where uh, it contributed to what we are.
2: That's interesting. I was going to ask about the the consciousness connection.
0: So dolphins eat that that shit all the time. Maybe they're even smarter than we are.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a very mystical relationship, and that, that's, uh, I don't think, overstating it, no. between dolphins and human beings. The stories of human beings, that, uh, individuals who have been, say, lost at sea, who were drowning and saved by wild dolphins, those stories go back thousands of years. The Greeks chronicled numerous stories like that, and there were other people that talked about that. How is that possible? that a a wild animal, uh, not as an individual, but usually as pods, as groups, will come to the rescue of human beings. I mean, there are modern stories like that also common. That's because that animal recognizes there's a commonality, and that animal might also remember a time when we shared uh, a transitional period together. They went on and became aquatic, and, and we... Return to the land. There yeah. might be some yeah. kind of a bond that they
0: they know they were man's best
2: friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they came like you were saying. They were kind of like a dog before they went into the the water. So that makes sense.
3: Right. They sharks were a dog like animals. Cats animal. turned
0: into sharks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, going back to the macaque and the proboscis for a second, when you're talking about the kind of evolutionary change going on there, how long has has that been? going on for? Is it something that's happening fairly quickly?
3: The interesting thing about evolution is that it does not travel at a certain speed. Generally, if it's unstimulated, if evolutionary, if they are unstimulated, evolutionary changes progress very slowly. However, if there is something in the environment that is radical that requires adaptation, amazing how fast evolution can move. It does move quickly. So it can move in, in spurts. It's an attempt by a species as I said before to adapt to new circumstances or else face extinction. And it's very difficult to for evolutionists to really chart the, the speed at which these changes make with different species. So to answer your question, how long has this process been going on uh, I'd say that that's very controversial, right, because you would have to figure out also well what are the changes what are the challenges, the physical yeah. challenges the environmental challenges that, that afflicted or or uh challenged the the species you know and it's it's not easy to do that
2: no but but we're talking like decades or centuries, not thousands of years, right
3: Well, I think we are mostly taking we are talking about thousands of years, right? oh okay. Yeah, I think huh. many thousands of years huh. for the most part. Huh. It depends on the species, too. Insect species, because they are are able to reproduce so quickly, uh, they can make changes within literally decades, if right, understood. Right. now. But it takes a longer time for a primate to uh, reproduce itself and to pass on these genetic changes.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think um, I read something not too long ago about some sort of insect species that they'd they had actually in in like between since now in the 70s they had actually noticed evolution in an insect.
3: Right, they uh, had to do with uh, pollution uh, in England. There are a number of uh, butterflies or moths, excuse me, that were uh, this one particular type for time out of mind, and because of all the pollution that took place around Manchester and that landed on the trees and so forth, that the moth was able to change its uh, coloration to adapt to the pollution that took place. So that's only a matter of decades if that, that mm. happened. But again, the moth, of course, is able to uh, pass on its that genetic information very quickly relatively to what, what we can do. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I get, uh, a very interesting point uh, that we're talking about that you brought up is mentioned in the book. It was a shocking thing that I found out. Most people don't realize this, although it's been written up in National Geographic and a number of other prestigious national magazines. And that is that uh, it's now understood by geneticists working with DNA that the human population, Homo sapiens, modern man, stood at about two million people about 80,000 years ago. That was our population worldwide, about 2 million. Now, this is not entirely modern man, very close, but not the same. We are Homo sapiens sapiens, and there's actually a big difference because there were many variations of Homo sapiens, and not all of them looked totally modern. Not all of them, most of them, were not really successful. And until really about... 80,000 years ago, which is not that long ago, we were kind of on an evolutionary merry-go-round. We had developed the use of fire, which is great, that's big, but hadn't really done all that much big shakes. And many of these Homo sapiens groups were coming into existence and then going out of existence. Like I said, we're kind of like in a cul-de-sac. But eighty thousand years ago, the largest volcano known in all Earth's history, not just human history, the largest known to science erupted in Indonesia. It's called Mount Toba, seventy five to eighty thousand years ago, probably closer to seventy five thousand years ago. And when that volcano erupted, it ejected so much material into the atmosphere that it wiped out whole species. It radically changed Earth's environment, the entire environment, the natural environment of the planet. All kinds of species winked out of existence. And our species went from 2 million people down to 1,000 breeding pairs. That's incredible. We were on the ninth edge of annihilation. That's how close we came. But those 1,000 breeding pairs, they were the toughest, the smartest, and had the best immune system. They developed the immunity systems that you and I and every other human being on the planet have today. And so this horrific holocaust where an entire species was downsized from 2 million to 1,000 breeding pairs was the best thing that ever happened to us. Hmm. Because until that time, we were really not that... We were kind of an an ugly primate. There were certainly other creatures that were superior to us in virtually every way, except for our use of fire, which we didn't even use that well. We used it mostly to set other fires, to drive animals out so we could kill them easier. That's about all. But those survivors of Mount Toba 75,000 years ago, they passed down to us... Uh, Our cleverness, our adaptability, our strength, because those survivors had to be the best, the smartest, and the strongest. That's what uh, selection really meant. And uh, thank God for that, because that gave us what we are today. And I think that that was the beginning. Now, this is where now the book, Before Atlantis, gets really heretical and scientists really get hot about this. Because you're told in school that the first civilization goes back, oh, maybe at most five thousand years ago.
0: Sumerians, to, uh, the, I believe. The
3: Fertile Crescent Fertile Crescent, you know, in the middle in the near east, yeah, Sumerian. All that stuff you know ancient Egypt and the Nile Valley a little bit later
1: mm-hmm.
3: but I don't believe that
2: no no and I that, think this the is... evidence shows yeah.
3: that, uh, that civilized man began 75,000 years ago not in the Near East but in Indonesia. I think that that is the place where we, we made the, the crucial step from a rather uninteresting species to civilized man. Yeah. I think that, that is where it happened. And the reason why we don't have much evidence for that is, well, that's a long time ago, and civilization doesn't really produce things that last very long. I mean, hell, you might have a ship that can go around the world, but it's going to be made out of wood, and it's not going to last you know, for tens of thousands of years. Look at our civilization today that we think is so great. How much of our civilization is going to be around 10,000 years from now it's not going to be around ten years from now, a little ten thousand
0: years from now. <laughs> So, do you think that the the thousand breeding pairs that remain, do you think that they would have been in one place, or more likely, like I imagine it, kind of scattered all over the planet? A couple, they were. Of I think they were
3: scattered in groups. Yeah, I think do, they were. Do you think that, that could
0: account for rays? I
3: think that that. Uh, I would say probably no. I think that the different people that had to adapt to rough situations in different parts of the world, that might have contributed to the the diversity that's resulted in races. For example, uh, we look at the, the Asian people. And the Asian people generally, they have the epicanthic fold. Uh, in other words, that delineates uh, the eye configuration that we're familiar with. Well, why is that? Why did they develop the epicanthic fold? Because the epicanthic fold is ideal for keeping dust out of your eyes. So that means that they were in a situation, their ancestors were in a situation in which they were surrounded by high winds and dusty situations for a long time, and they passed down the epicanthic fold because it it worked for them. Now, whereas uh, the Caucasian people, they developed a lighter skin they develop light color eyes because they must have lived under dark conditions darker conditions because you need the lighter skin in order to get in as much vitamin D from the Sun you don't have that much sun and you need the lighter eyes in order to take in more sunlight so the Caucasian ancestors that migrated into Northern Europe were beset, of course, by another catastrophe—natural catastrophe—and that is the onset of the Ice Age, which was a direct result of uh, what happened with Mount Toba, that completely disrupted the atmosphere. We followed hunting, we followed uh, uh, game into Northern Europe, and we found the conditions there very difficult. But again, uh, the stress and the challenges of living in Northern Europe. Uh, developed us into uh, the great cave artists of Lascaux um, and the the uh, Cro-Magnon man and, and uh, modern, until we finally have the modern man. And then you have the blacks in Africa who develop darker skin, who develop uh, uh, broader nostrils. This is all in, in a dry climate in which you have heating problems and you have to be able to get off as much uh you have to have to compensate for as much heat and aridity that the other races would not have to deal with so i think that if we see the two forces of heredity and environment working together that this pr- explains the development of races and the development of modern man we are the product of you are the sum total of millions of years of interaction between environmental challenges and hereditary response to those challenges and that they didn't just stop a few thousand years ago they still are continuing today
0: so then on that on that note do you think our sudden eruption of technology will will rapidly change our evolution yeah i mean other than self-inflicted which is (laughs) seems to be a possibility uh in a couple of different ways
3: well no, technology makes a very wonderful servant, but a very terrible god and What I mean by that is that the moment that a a people begin to regard technology as the answer to everything every all sociological problems and everything else, in other words, it excuses their moral behavior because there'll always be some technological solution to it. That's when the people near their extinction that's when the people begin to self destruct hmm. instead tech uh, technology is something to be mastered, and to be used for higher purposes. And technology is used for higher purposes. Sometimes, of course, you know, in medicine, that's great, In communication, all these wonderful things. But it also, of course, allows us to build things like drones, doesn't it, and atomic bombs. And these things in themselves are neither good nor bad. Science is amoral. It has nothing to do with it. It's just as it's, it's, its use, just like, uh, like fire which is the original technology. Fire is a wonderful thing to cook your food and, and to uh, warm your, your domicile. That's a terrible thing if you use it to set fire to somebody else's domicile. Hmm. And yeah, the same technological... Witch. I'm sorry? Or,
0: or yes. to burn a witch.
3: Or to burn a witch, exactly. To burn somebody that has an idea that uh, is contrary to your own. The other thing that I I learned in in the book, and this is why I liked writing this book, because I didn't know anything. I began as a complete ignoramus with questions. And along the way, while asking these questions, um, I found the work of others who had done very hard work in these things, and some of the answers came about it. The other answers that have suggested themselves is that civilization is a great thing, it's wonderful, it works good, but it is a balance between the environment and the population. Humanity went through a golden age, you know, at a, a very long and wonderful golden age. It was called the Neolithic period. Neolithic means the New Stone Age. This was a tremendous period right at the end of the last Ice Age when those conditions which were so tough and so difficult that I mentioned before that the, the peoples that lived in Europe uh, the most art that they could do would be really in the caves to get away from the awful conditions, environmental conditions. Everything was a matter of survival. You didn't have time, you didn't have the luxury to have reading uh, or much for art just to survive. But then when the Ice Age began to come to an end quite rapidly, it's now understood, the Ice Age didn't just gradually taper off. It, it The warming period set in really quite suddenly over the period of just a couple of centuries then the planet got warm as it is today we're now in something known as the Holocene period and the same temperatures and the same generally good conditions that we've had for the last 10 or 12,000 years made possible civilization we had now time for things like agriculture and for uh, the arts and human cooperation and there was a period of many thousands of years, maybe as long as eight 8,000 years, where human beings, it's <laughs> hard to believe, were not involved in war, were not involved in uh, building empires and destroying other peoples. Uh, the record of the Neolithic age, the, the New Stone Age, is one of cooperation. Um, matter of fact, it was, it was found not too long ago that Someone thought, "Oh no! Here's a spear point used from a, a weapon." Well, it turns out that it it wasn't a spear point at all. It turned out to be uh, an agricultural implement, and it's amazing. Uh, it was a golden age of tremendous uh, economic prosperity and new things being invented all the time.
2: Now, what's the, what's the timeline, the timeline of that?
3: The timeline of this is right from the end. Of the last glacial epoch, which is generally referred to as the Ice Age, about about eleven thousand years ago, um, all the way up to really about maybe five thousand yeah, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. long period of time, and uh, I couldn't really believe this myself. But the more I looked into it, and the more uh, archaeologists I spoke with and, and paleoanthropologists, they said, yes, they're, they're really it's a very well-documented time. I mean, there's thousands of artifacts and artwork and great things, the invention of pottery and so on, and uh, seamanship and uh, trade routes and all this. You, you, everything you see from this period is, is one of cooperation. It's just remarkable. And I, I wonder, like, well, how is that? What happened? Why, how did that end? The answer to that is that human beings, after the end of the last ice age, if you want to call it that glacial epoch, they lived in small communities, small tribal communities. And it would, it would appear that they felt very much identified with their, their families, which were extensions. Uh, of the, the tribes, rather, were extensions of the family. So tribal, there was a lot of tribal loyalty, but not tribal competition. And as a consequence, these little communities, whenever they got to be a little too large, they broke up and they would go elsewhere and form a new little tribal community, which would be just another uh, economic uh, partner or competitor. And the balance between human population and environment is the key to the golden age. In other words, the population of the the human population, never created severe demands on the environment. Whenever there appeared to be that case, they would break off and form a new little settlement someplace else. There's no evidence for kings or rulers or standing armies, prisons, uh, laws, none of that. And it's only when (laughs) the environment changed badly around, well, really around, I would say six to 7,000 years ago, the environment deteriorated, and all of the natural agricultural abundance began to shrink that these various communities came into conflict with each other because the the natural resources were not as available. These communities then... Sometimes would band together so that they could overcome other communities. And here you have now the beginning of empires and city states. And then, when you have the city states, they're very successful to an extent. They manage everything, but in order to get things managed, you need a headman or a king, then you need to be able to enforce his laws. Oh,
0: and then you have wars. Man. That seems to be the then, like the number one factor about, about people's problems, is when everyone gets together, you need to put someone in charge, and he always turns out to be trouble.
3: <laughs> Invariably. Uh, and it, it's actually not even that person's fault, because now you have all these factions that are competing, and you have to try to balance them. I'm speaking in a very general way, of course. Yeah. And if you can balance them successfully, and maybe you're a beneficent leader, maybe you have real compassion for the people below you, you still have hard laws that have to be enforced. And maybe you're you're doing the best job you can. Well, maybe the next city-state over has somebody which is not as benevolent as you are and wants your success, a part of your success. And that is the whole history of civilization since Sumer, right down to the good old USA. And, and
2: ironically enough, that's the, the time frame that um, that's the mainstream accepts. But the timeline before that that you were talking about, that's kind of not accepted right now, right?
3: No, it's looked upon as too primitive and so on. Yeah, but yeah. I will challenge yeah. anyone Huh. to find a more creative outburst of originality, the invention of pottery, the invention of uh, astronomy even. There's a place now which has been excavated in so- southern Turkey called Gebekli Tepe, yeah. and it has completely turned archaeology on its head, yeah. because here is an advanced, beautiful ceremonial center that was made not that long after the end of the Ice Age. And it appears that this ceremonial center of these great columns that are arranged in concentric circles have astronomical orientations. That's amazing that somebody was able to see the correspondence between, well, as above, so below, and actually apply it in magnificent architecture. Not only that, but some of the uh, bas-relief that are on Gebeki Tepe and here we're talking about a site that's 11,000 more than 11,000 years old right at the end of the last ice age some of the bas-relief of animals portrayed on these celestially oriented structures are the same constellations in the sky that we recognize today by the same animals hmm. for example the, the scorpion is apparently so- associated with Scorpio Uh, Libra, and so forth. There are at least four or five constellations that appear now at Gilbecki Tappe, And this goes back right, these are the inheritors of the caves at Lascaux in the the old uh, Ice Age culture that flourished subterranean, in a subterranean fashion underground. It's remarkable. But I think that that was a golden And if that's true, if that's correct, rather than being just a condemnation of society, it should be a recognition someday that, well, if we can create a balance between our human population and the environment, then we can not go back in time. I'm not suggesting that, but we can create that natural balance in which we don't have to have overt competition to the point of killing each other over something, and human beings are essentially decent and good and rational creatures. They don't need government. They are just exactly like our founding fathers hit it right on the head that the best government is the least government. Go even further than that, the best government is no government because people, adult men and women, are intelligent enough and decent enough to run their own affairs without somebody else coming in and telling them what to do. That is an important realization we need to understand again. We don't need the system. We don't.
2: Yeah, we're the inherently that, collaborators, not competitors, really.
3: You bet. Yeah. It is the – and I don't care what system is You can call it any, any name you want, democracy, communism, it's, it doesn't make any difference. Those are just inflections of the same fraud that is – self-perpetuated itself. The history of of the human race shows that we are intelligent and decent enough to run our own affairs. And the history of even of our own country really shows that. There's a magnificent book that I read, one of the most inspiring books I have ever read in my life. And It was about the early childhood of Abraham Lincoln when he was just a boy. His family originated in Kentucky. And they, they, of course, in the early, early part of the 19th century, that was the Wild West in those days. And they moved, the poor people, farmers from Kentucky, because it was getting overcrowded, they moved into Illinois. And they moved into the settlement in Illinois. And when they moved in, they were total strangers, of course. Everybody in that little community who were strangers to them stopped what they were doing They built the Lincolns a new house. Everybody contributed their own work. Somebody was maybe an expert carpenter. Somebody else might have been uh, 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 like the women were expert at, at weaving, for example. And they built this house, a log cabin, for free, for nothing for the Lincolns. This is a true story. They didn't know anything about them at all. They were just new people moving in. And then when the house was completed, they celebrated by putting on a big communal feast for everybody. Well, what was expected, of course, is that when somebody else moved in, the Lincolns also had to contribute in the same way. What an incredible system. There was no government telling them what to do. There were no fees or taxes. This was the, actually the American way. That is how the American West was really pioneered. People would come out and cooperate and help each other on that to that level. And except that you you were expected to uh, reciprocate, to contribute your own particular talents and hard work when somebody else came in, and that's how the West was really won. Hmm. And when you realize that the Neolithic pioneers of many thousands of years ago were exactly the same, they had no government either. They just got together and did the right thing. So I think that we need to go back to a tribal a way of thinking of things. That's the conclusion of the book, hmm. is that we need to become more tribal. We need to rely upon our own compassion. Of course, that's not going to be happening by somebody writing a book. It's going to be happening when the system that we're laboring under now self-destructs, when it, it it unravels itself. Then, hopefully, people will have an opportunity to understand that it's been the system that has created these problems, because it needs problems in order to justify its own existence, and um, that hopefully is a maturity that uh, that we can look forward to.
0: Yeah, it seems like uh, we're going to have front row seats in time for for that event too. It doesn't seem like it can it can hang on much longer.
3: No, no. And it's no big revelation. I mean, you realize that, and I think millions of other Americans and people around the world also realize, yeah, pull up a chair, you know. It's it's out of control, and it's good. It's good that this is happening. These catastrophes that have happened to the human species, I won't say human race because that's kind of an outdated term, and I don't even know what it means anymore. When I look at these so-called different races like the white and the black and the Asian and so on, they now do not seem to me like races so much. They seem to me like actual uh, subgroups. I guess you can still call them races. I don't want to get hung up on semantics. They seem like uh, variations of homo sapiens, yeah. really. Yeah. Different homo sapiens group. Yeah. They're, they're not the same. I won't. I mean, I know that's highly uh, politically incorrect to say that. To you. I don't believe they're the same, but I think that their strength their individual strength lies in the fact that they are not the same, that they have specific uh, talents and characteristics to contribute, but they are variations. they are variations on the, on the human theme. But I think that uh, what, we're, what has happened in the past is happening now. The only difference now is that we're creating our own catastrophes. That is, it was natural catastrophes like Mount Toba that wiped out almost all human beings, but it was great for us was, hey, that was our jumping off spot, you know, mm-hmm. we became what we are.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that uh, we're going to be probably creating our own, which may reduce also in sudden uh, depopulations here and there, may. Or it could I be a mix of both. Anything.
2: It could be a, something could be natural a, that then develops into uh, something that we accelerate ourselves.
3: You're 100% correct because nature goes right ahead. <laughs> you know, whether or not, you know, yeah, whether yeah. or not we do anything if we're we're perfectly behaved children or not, you know, yeah, nature's right. still gonna do what yeah. she's gonna do. And so um but I I think that uh, these catastrophes, these these worldwide cataclysms that happen from time to time are really the, the impetus for for change. And nature is just hurling us that that challenge, you know, adapt or die now. Yeah. And uh, well Let's let's see what happens. You know, I cannot believe that I have this dumb faith that human beings have come so far just to uh, become extinct. I don't think so. I think we have a grand destiny, but I also think we have some difficult times
1: ahead. Yeah.
3: And uh, I would, I, on one level, I would hope that they would never happen. No one likes to see other people in pain or be killed and so forth. But in the broader perspective, that's the way nature works, like it or not. Nature is cruel but just. And I mean, just look at the workings of nature, and you can see it's nature is beautiful and wonderful, but also there's a lot of what appears to us cruelty and pain, and that's you know, like it or not, that's the way it is, and and we are not excluded from that process.
2: Makes me think of some of the the next, like the second half of your book, which gets into um, how these, like the next evolution. I guess would you call that the uh, the megalithic age? After that, when they had to start putting seasonal markers all around. Like I was fascinated reading your book about the uh, the dolmens and the menhirs, and and I've I finally sort of had a global picture together in my head, thinking about how these travelers all around the globe must have needed these these markers to tell the seasons right because it's easy enough if you're sitting in one spot to to know like okay we're coming towards fall or winter but if you're traveling around um it's kind of hard to tell unless you have these markers
3: well that makes me feel really good to hear you say that that uh it's giving you some kind of a, a handle on it these megalithic sites that are around the world uh, makes a little more sense to you. It certainly does to me also. Uh, our listeners may not be aware, but uh, there are these magnificent stone structures, like Stonehenge, maybe not quite as developed as that, but similar to that, that are not confined to the British Isles. Yeah, like all over not the just globe. They're only in right? England. Yeah. They go around the world. There are tens of thousands, at least tens of thousands of these magnificent, sometimes huge stone works, sometimes in circles, sometimes just single uh, large stones, that are oriented to celestial phenomena and usually to the same celestial phenomena. In Korea alone, there are, I think, like 15,000. There are a thousand of these usually identical structures. Some of them are called dolmens. A dolmen is kind of like a uh, a table, excuse me, I'm sorry No, no a dolmen is is like a uh, a stone structure, as you see in Western Europe, and the others are known as menhirs, they look like uh tables, and these structures are not entirely but mostly oriented to celestial phenomena. What's remarkable about that is that the chief phenomena that they're oriented to i don't know if I even mentioned this in the book, maybe i I did in passing, I can't recall the chief astronomical alignment that these stone structures are aligned to is the winter solstice, December 21st, around that time. What's interesting about that is that the winter solstice, of course, signifies the longest night of the year and the shortest day. It's the transition, it's the real New Year's Day, where the days after that slightly begin, begin to get a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And the the days or the nights that led up to the winter solstice got longer and longer, and the days got shorter and shorter. But after December 21st, after the winter solstice, the light begins to come back. This is is symbolic. It's allegorical for the return of uh, light, which is associated with enlightenment or knowledge and the conquest of ignorance, which is usually associated with benightedness or or darkness. And it's remarkable to think that these stone structures in England and in North America and South America, across the Pacific, across all of Asia, and into North Africa, that each winter solstice, they would flash around the world with their orientation to that sunrise on that particular day. And that's not the only orientation that they had, but that's the chief orientation. So my conclusion is that these stones were created by a seafaring people who erected them all over the world. They're found even in Australia by many hundreds, maybe thousands in Australia. These stones also go back to about uh, six to 7,000 years ago. Some were made more recently. And some of them are contemporaneous. In other words, they were all built at the same time. Not all of them, but a great many of them were. Mm. My conclusion is, is that they were built by a seafaring people from who probably originated in Western Europe because those appear to be the oldest. There's one of them, as a matter of fact, is called Ergra, which is the most remarkable of them all. This thing weighed something like 300 tons. It still exists. Uh, It stood about 60 feet high. It was an an enormous stone that had been shaped like a great needle, a great lithic needle. And sometime around maybe about 5,000 or 6,000 years ago, it fell over when a severe earthquake hit uh, Atlantic coastal France. But until that time, this great stone needle could be seen from as far as 12 miles out at sea. It was obviously a reference point of some kind. Hmm. But mostly these things were built by a seafaring people who originated, it would appear in Western Europe, and were in some kind of a, a religious mission around the world. And that this mission was the worship of light and everything that, that light implied, as I mentioned before, enlightenment and, and knowledge. They were kind of like astronomer priests. And I think that they erected these structures around the world uh, as they converted local peoples to this ideology, or theology, if you want to call it, an old theology. And that that's the remains of the first global civilization does not go back only a few decades ago to either the British Empire or or the American Empire, or whatever you want to call it. I think the first global empire, if you want to call it, that was a was a religious empire and that was established by these megalithic Europeans sometime about oh about 4th four, between 4000 and 5000 BC that long ago and that they left their their markers their monuments where they still can be seen today and sometimes in the high mountains in the Rockies there are the great medicine wheels these medicine wheels that are revered by native americans have been shown to be contemporaneous with the same structures that are found in the British Isles. And they even have the same uh, astronomical orientations. Remarkable. So, I, I, think I, have that
2: the- th- I have to tell you guys about a synchronicity about this medicine wheel. <laughs> so Darren doesn't know this either. So this weekend, like two days ago, three days ago, I'm lying in bed reading your book, and I'm making plans with a friend uh, to go outside somewhere for a walk or a hike. So she texts me, she wants to go to this medicine wheel and, uh, it's out, out East of Calgary. I didn't even know where it was. I hadn't heard of it before. And I'm reading the book and I'm writing this chapter called sacred hoops, which is a fabulous chapter. And, uh, I'm reading it and I hear about this medicine wheel on the, on the, on the, uh, border of Saskatchewan and Alberta. And I thought, that's strange. I wonder if I wonder if there's possibly a medicine wheel in this book that would be that close. And sure enough, like two pages later, I'm reading about the exact medicine wheel that I'm about to go see
0: that day. You, <laughs> drove, you drove all the way to the border?
2: No, this one is uh, near... Um, oh, jeez, now I'm going to forget the name of it. It's about an hour away from Calgary. That's it. And the Blackfoot Crossing. There's a whole... Um, there's a whole tourist Majorville? center. Yeah, the Majorville one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually find it. I'm going to go back because it's it's not part of the tourist destination. They've built this whole this whole tourist destination around that area, but the medicine wheel is actually a few kilometers away, and you have to take some dirt roads, and it's kind of hard to find. So I'm going to have to go back there.
3: It sounds like a
1: quest.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then Darren and I will have to go to the, the one on the border there, the smaller one is only about four hours away, so... It'll
3: minute. be worth it. Yeah. You know, the thing about synchronicity, it's so fabulous that you share that with us. I'm really grateful that you did. That's uh, Moments like that are very, very special, especially if you pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, Years ago, uh, I wrote a book on synchronicity. I, I really thought it was a very fascinating subject. And the thing that I found, it's really uh, the most mystical thing I can imagine, is that if, if someone is passionate about something, really interested in something, that seems to be the mechanism for meaningful coincidences.
1: Hmm.
3: If you're not really particularly interested in anything, you're not going to have many of these little miracles that happen. But I can guarantee you that if you take up an interest in something, it's like these little miracles penetrate one's life and that's been certainly my experience that if i become passionately interested in something or someone uh it's as though these doors flash open and you have these wonderful meaningful coincidences like the one that you had and that's great when that happens because it's it's like you're part of some kind of a, a higher destiny or something i know it sounds kind of almost hollywood like but nonetheless uh that seems to be the case it's like it's like some, something is nudging you on to something greater than yourself, but that yourself nonetheless participates in.
2: Yeah, I kind of feel like it's a sign that you're on the right path or or you're on a good path. I used to try and keep track of them, write little notes down, because they, they started happening quite a bit. But that one just, I mean, when I tell it to people, it doesn't sound like it felt. Like it, it felt so profound because I'm sitting there thinking, I've never even heard of this medicine wheel it's an hour away and this all happens on the same day so
3: no actually i think that the way you describe it so well i think that people can appreciate uh, your feeling involved in it and i'm sure that when you do get to these places that they'll become very meaningful to you i think something you'll never forget the rest of your life i think they'll have the just that experience if you go i find though that if you go to a place like that with high expectations, it's as though they they become rather dull. Yeah, yeah. If you go to a <laughs> uh, if you go to a place like that with no expectation, but just leave your your consciousness open to hey, yeah. I'm I'm glad I'm glad for anything that happens here. Yeah. Then it's like they they speak to you and they become very significant then. Yeah. But it, it's it's the problem of the ego as adversary. I, if you I go agree. in there, yeah. uh, Like uh, if you go to a, a performance of a comedian and you're thinking, well, you know, make me laugh, try to make it funny. You know, it's not going to be funny, but if you just go in there, what does this guy have to offer, then it'll he'll be funny. Yeah, <laughs> if
2: I go there with expectations that are too high, I'll just be like, oh, it's just a pile of rocks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Oh, gosh, I expect to see all this great stuff. And yeah. The other interesting
2: thing out, I was yeah. looking at is uh, we live in Calgary here, and there was uh, Glacial Lake, Calgary, too, which was just, I guess uh, – this big glacier was moving through here during the ice age, or whatever, and it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of left a little spot. I think Nose Hill Park was uh, this 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 park, this highland near Calgary that was kind of still exposed during the ice age, maybe. So it's uh, there's yeah. some interesting history here.
3: Oh, I'm I'm sure, yeah, yeah. It's it's great stuff, great stuff. Canada, I think, is really underrated by uh, people in the United States too much. They just don't know. Enough about it. I had the pleasure to write a book about Canada, one called "Sacred Sites of the West," oh. back in ni- 1997, and that gave me an opportunity to look into some of the really fabulous places in in Canada, and prompted me to go and check some of these great things out. I mean, it's just
2: that, that's why we say back. we're, you know, in Grimerica here. Our podcast we say we're we're uh, broadcasting from the igloo just to kind of reinforce that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's- Good.
2: <laughs> so, um, the other thing that fascinated me about this seafaring global race that we were talking about, or, or or culture, is is the deep sea fishing that you that you found, like, or that there's evidence for all over, which I never realized.
3: Right there, are, uh, archaeologists know of, uh, people called the red paint people, and it's a very bizarre thing because they, whoever they were, the red paint people were these tremendous. Uh, Uh, mariners they were able to uh, create uh, harpoons, which still exist, and and, uh, toggle uh, harpoons for deep-sea fishing. And this is, we're talking about a period that predates, supposedly, anybody in the Americas doing anything like that. And they're also referred to as the maritime archaic. They lived all up along the eastern shores of Canada, uh, down to uh, some of the New England areas of uh, the United States as well. And um, they created stone structures that were also, again, very similar to the ones that we see in Western Europe. And I think that these people referred to as the red paint people. They're referred to as red paint people because they used red ochre in their uh, burial uh, practices. Some of the uh, uh, funeral monuments that have been found uh, by this maritime archaic have red ochre, the same type of burial that is used, by the way, as by the megalith builders in Western Europe. So, whether we call them the red paint people or the megalith builders, I think they're the same seafarers
1: hmm. yeah.
3: that uh, crossed uh, the North Atlantic and uh, were very capable in going far beyond there. And I think they made the, the left their impressions elsewhere. I mean, how else can we really explain? uh something like these structures that are found in Japan and in Mexico and South America that are virtually identical to the same structures, even oriented to the same celestial phenomena as in Western Europe and were built at the same time. Archaeologists, conventional archaeologists will say, Oh, it's all coincidence that it happened. Well, I refuse to believe that. I think that what we're looking at is the are the remnants, the living monuments of this very great people who mastered the sea and who had also achieved high levels of science, applied science. Uh, this very is, where,
1: long time, this so. is
2: where the mainstream um, explanations are even harder to believe than some of these alternative explanations, like you know the glaciers leaving the top of the dolmen or what, whatever you call those, sitting on top of the, you know, the, the tri- tripod legs. You know, And you yeah, find these all is, over the world, ridiculous. and they're trying to explain it like it's, oh, yeah, it's just uh, you know, natural. It's ludicrous. It's yeah.
3: ludicrous. If you find one of these dolmen in Western Europe, the archaeologists will immediately say, oh, yes, this is a dolmen that was made by uh, Stone Age people. And you find the exact same structure, even dating to the same period. And say so anywhere in the Americas and, and Canada or in, North America, in the United States, they'll say, well, that's a glacial erratic. It yeah. was caused by a glacier that just happened to deposit this six-ton Stone perfectly on this little tripod, and they left them all over the place. And the the cool thing about it was, is that one of the investigators, uh, Fred Ridholm, who was a really a brilliant investigator of uh, this particular problem back in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, he found out that these uh, tripod structures that are found in North America were in the driftless area. <laughs> in other words, there were no the scientists themselves say there were no glaciers. <laughs> in this particular area so how are we to explain it then you know the glaciers just uh, magically created it anyway I suppose somehow
2: yeah, but, then, and I or... think
3: science, uh, some science conventional science is really very outdated and uh, doesn't really address itself to the, the problems that uh, an ordinary person of you know, usual rational faculties would be able to see through
0: so um Switching gears here a little bit, uh, if you don't mind. I, I kind of wanted to touch base with you and talk a little about uh, Lemuria as well while we had you on.
3: Well, that that's, I think that really doesn't switch gears all that much <laughs> uh, because we were talking about this great eruption of Mount Toba between seventy-five and eighty thousand years ago in Indonesia, and that eruption was similar to an atomic blast in this regard. When the atom bombs went off at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, the persons that most suffered were those um, outside the immediate epicenter of the blast. And that many people survived right at the, the center of the blast. That's because it radiated outward.
1: Hmm.
3: It would appear also that something similar like that happened in Indonesia, where a sizable population of people living really close to Mount Toba survived. That's because the blast effects were radiating outward more, and the real victims were beyond the immediate uh, place of eruption. And I think that this population, although things were still rough, extremely difficult for sure for people to survive, but I think that those people that did survive in Indonesia I think those are the ones that created the first civilization. I think they were the first civilized human beings. They made the transition from um, just Homo sapiens to Homo sapiens sapiens, which is the really the crucial factor there. Hmm. The reason why I say so is because the traditions associated with civilization really can be traced back to uh, the uh, East uh, to the Western Central Pacific. Uh, This is, of course, not something that's taught in the schools, uh, certainly not part of textbook versions. There's a very brilliant uh, book called um, uh, Eden of the East, uh, which is by uh, Robert Oppenheimer. Excuse me, Stephen Oppenheimer. I get our our geniuses mixed up here. (laughs) Stephen Oppenheimer, who's a very uh, brilliant uh, scientist. uh, whose credentials are just impeccable and he's in his book and in his work he's been able to show that some of these early themes of civilization really do stem and precede the beginnings of official beginnings of civilization in the near east and i think that that's where the the transition was made there was a uh, an english colonel his name was james churchward who was involved in flood relief in india during the 1870s and because he took a great interest in uh, the local culture, and also because uh, he was a sincere humanitarian and really didn't have the English uh, arrogance of that time, and as a, that the people who were suffering in India didn't really matter, he really did try to help them. That some of the um, the uh, scholars, they were known as the rishis, heads of monasteries in India, shared some very old and rare. Uh, records with Colonel Churchward. And these records refer to the beginning of civilization in the western central Pacific and uh, refer to a place referred to sometimes as Mu or as Lemuria. These are cultural variations Mm. on the same subject. And uh, it's it's actually, I can hardly provide more than just a thumbnail sketch of what we're talking about here, but I've been able to trace some important themes which I haven't really found any place else, so well, maybe this is an original contribution, I don't know. This Gulbeki tepi that we talked about earlier in, in um, southern uh, Turkey mm-hmm. has very unusual and would appear to be unique uh, characteristics that are associated with the Pacific. And what I'm referring to specifically are these pillars that are found at Göbekli Tepe. They are configured in an anthropomorphic way in which they show these long arms and... Uh, and hands and distended fingers oriented towards the navel. So these pillars or columns, whatever you want to call them, that are oriented to various celestial phenomena, the emphasis is on the navel. And the name Gilbeki Tepe itself, in Turkish, strangely enough, and this is long before the site was found, means the hill of the navel, or the navel hill, strangely enough.
1: Hmm.
3: This very uh, almost diagnostic structure that is found at Gebekli Tepe, where you have these hands oriented towards the navel, is found also on Easter Island in the Pacific. Easter Island is the name that was given to this place when it was found by a Dutch uh, navigator, Captain uh, Roggeveen, in uh, 1720, I believe. And the original name for Easter Island was Tepito-Tahenua. This is what the Native people refer to Te And Tepito-Tahenua means the navel of the world.
1: Hmm.
3: What is the most uh, uh, famous image associated with Easter Island or Tepito-Tahenua? And that is the Moai. These are these great statues that are shown, usually all very much the same. And the emphasis, emphasis there is on the navel, most of them. Were, are buried up to their necks through deposition to show how old they are for, another, for a natural deposition to have taken place. They were not deliberately buried. They're, they were standing on platforms known as Ahu. And when they were originally created, these Easter Island statues, they are shown to be having long arms draped down the sides, and again they... Your orientation is to the navel.
2: I just noticed that today, actually, because I was... Uh, Darren's been updating our, our website. Grammar, our
0: grammaric uh, <laughs> logo is actually a, a, a Moe. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: yeah, so that's fascinating.
3: It is. So the, the thing one has to wonder is, uh, is it just a coincidence that this ancient site in the Pacific, on the other side of the world has the same very strange and unique style that we find in Quebec Tepe in southern Turkey it's it's very peculiar and here the same name Tepecu Teheno, the navel of the world well why the emphasis on the navel well the navel that is the place of beginning as it were hmm. birth, it's associated with birth and the the uh, South Sea Islanders, not just the Polynesians but the Macronesians and the Micronesians and and other peoples, uh, before the introduction of Christianity, and this is especially on Easter Island, uh, used the the navel string of a child when it was born as a very sacred object. Uh, On Easter Island especially, when a child was born, The the umbilicus or the navel cord was separated, was cut, and then put in a a kind of a repository and was used for medical purposes. We don't know what those medical purposes were because Christianity, the Christians came in, the missionaries, and they demonized all that and had that all um, expunged from their cultures. What's interesting, of course, is today... That's yeah, the where stem cells come from, I believe. The stem cells come from the navel cord, right. Interesting. Huh. So what are we missing? What are we missing? Yeah, the the stem cell research now is focuses on the umbilical cord that is associated with early childhood. So here you see these themes that are taking place. And I've tried to enumerate a lot more. Not these are not I know to our listeners it may sound like completely circumstantial and maybe stretching things too much hopefully i've enumerated more examples and try to more than we can discuss here tonight
0: yeah most of our yeah. listeners have a pretty open mind so uh and the, uh, we've had uh other other fellows like michael cremo on in the past kind, oh, of, kind of touching yeah, yeah. on these same same things um gobekli tepe was that 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 was also buried wasn't it like that the, I thought I heard yes. that that was buried. It wasn't naturally covered, it was actually buried. That
3: is correct. Oh, which is
2: different than Easter Island. Yeah.
3: Is it different. Well, you have to understand that Easter Island's history was interrupted um, by some very severe social dislocations. The most recent, of course, was uh, the uh, Chilean conquest. Uh, Easter, Easter Island civilization was still flourishing at the time that uh, Admiral Rogovine, in the 18th century, saw uh, the moais that were still erected. So we don't know whether they would have, in fact, buried that uh, those sculptures or not. Those sculptures we know were not deliberately, deli- excuse me, deliberately buried on Easter Island. That what we're seeing there is the natural process of deposition, uh, the works of uh, of earth and wind to bury these structures up to their necks. This would indicate that these structures are far older than mainstream archaeologists are telling us. They're saying that the Moai on Easter Island are only a few centuries old, perhaps no more than four or 500 years old, Wow. But uh, that's contradicted not only by the deposition that's taken place, but by the lichen that's growing on these stones as well. There's a really interesting scientist today, he's an assistant professor of geology at Boston University, and that's Dr. Robert Schock, who's got some kind of a reputation as an alternative thinker. And he, too, uh, suggests, and of course with his uh, background in geology, Uh, indicates, I think, very persuasively that the structures on Easter Island could be many thousands of years old, perhaps even contemporary with Gobekli Tepe. But Gobekli Tepe itself, as you point out uh, correctly, was deliberately buried. And they found other sites, not quite as uh, advanced as Gobekli Tepe, that were also deliberately buried. We find that same process of burying an entire site, uh, an entire village or an entire Uh, structure. You find that also among the Maya. The Maya in uh, Central America and in Mexico did precisely the same thing. Uh, A few years ago, I was lucky enough in Honduras to uh, visit um, Cobá, which is a major Maya site. And when you go there today, and you can see the archaeological excavations, they lead you underground, and you see these various levels where the city was every few generations deliberately buried. Nobody knows exactly why that was done. We don't understand. But nonetheless, we're finding these parallels in other parts of the world. I think it's part of the global civilization or civilizations that took place. That our civilization is not a uniquely global phenomenon. I don't believe that.
0: I think we're actually we're going to get to meet Robert Schock uh, here next month. Aren't we, Graham?
2: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah.
0: Is he at Paradigm?
2: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, we're coming to uh, Minneapolis in the end of October for the Paradigm Symposium.
3: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, that should be quite an experience, and Dr. Jacques, of course, has a lot of respect around the world for his, his outspokenness, as well as for his work in uh, alternative views.
0: Mm-hmm. So, h- how, long, how long, how much of your life have you devoted to uh, alternative? Like, have you always kind of had a problem with what they were trying to sell you?
3: No, not at all. Uh, I think I was just as conventional as, as the next guy. Um, my problem was uh, when I went to the university. I went to Southern Illinois University. I had to take uh, general studies courses, and I found them very interesting. And uh, but I had uh, several wake-up calls, and one of them was uh, on this one particular holiday that I had. I went from my school, which was in Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And not far away, maybe two and a half hours away, was the city of St. Louis. And so one weekend, I just went, I was on my way to St. Louis just to have some fun. And uh, for one reason or another, I won't get into, it's not important, I had to get off the expressway at a place uh, where there was a sign, a brown sign that said, uh, Cahokia Mounds. So I figured, well, oh, just Indian mounds. So I'll check them out. And I figured they'd just be these little hills, you know, some Indians buried in them you know, a few hundred years ago. And instead, when I got off, I was confronted by a pyramid it was over 100 feet high, had a base which was larger than the Great Pyramid of Egypt, it was obviously super- was made in an incredibly beautiful way, this enormous monument. There was a little museum there at the time. I heard nothing about it at all. Never heard about this. And the little museum said, yeah, yeah, this is known as Monk's Mound, and uh, it had all kinds of, again, astronomical significance, because just, oh, I think maybe a fifth of a mile away, there was a thing referred to as Woodhenge, Mm. which was a uh, selection of 24 cedar posts that were nothing less than an astronomical computer, and all this goes back to about the year 900 A.D. I was shocked! I had never heard of any such thing like this at all. This was in Illinois, just on the eastern side of the Mississippi River. So I went back to my history professor, and I said, well, how on earth could we have missed hearing about this? How come you never discussed this with us? (laughs) And the history professor told me, he said, well, it's not as significant as you imagine. What? What are you talking about? And it's not significant to him because it raises too many embarrassing questions, like who made this thing? Talk to the Native Americans and they'll tell you they did not. These were foreign people that came in and set it up. Their ancestors participated as the laborers, to be sure, but they didn't invent it. These are embarrassing questions for archaeologists who tell us that there were no foreign visitors to uh, the Western Hemisphere before Christopher Columbus arrived, (laughs) that 1492 is a line drawn in the sand that you cross at your peril. If you do, you are a heretic. You're a loony, that there was nobody here before then. Well, then how can you explain something like Monk's Mound? Well, the Indians must have made it. Well, here we go right back to the beginning, and the Native Americans say they didn't do it so we won't talk about it. That's what really got me thinking, like, something's wrong with this picture. And I began investigating other things. I found there's a lot wrong with this picture, that history is politics, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it seems and to be a bit of a radical.
3: Yeah, and if you, you bring up, even question things like this, uh, you're out of the loop. You don't have a, a career. You have to toe the line. I don't know exactly how it is in Canada. I know there have been some really great Canadian archaeologists, and I've written about a couple of them. But in the United States, I would say that archaeology is a moribund science. I think it is it's not even a science anymore, really. I think just as a debating society, and they just keep shuffling the same. American archae North American, or rather, United States archaeology hasn't made any discoveries. It must be in co- going on to a hundred years now. You know, it's 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 a fraud. It really wow. is. It's, it's it's. I mean, I have I have no respect for archaeologists, American archaeologists, U.S. archaeologists, at all. I mean. Uh, well, I think we're influenced
2: by the U.S. so much too. I mean, you know, and and to somewhat uh, the globe is
3: not anymore. Not to the luckily not to the extent that it used to be. I've luckily I've been able to travel to Japan, for example, and I've gone in the scientific circles there, and they're far more open-minded on these things. I found that even with Canada too, which is right across the border. For mm-hmm. God's sakes and there have there have been far more open mindedness there the, mo- the the most benighted of the archaeologists are in England and in the u s uh, otherwise people are uh, certainly uh archaeologists in Mexico and South America I would say are far more open minded on these things Of course, if you say open minded they say they'll mean gullible well they're not gullible they're university trained people just the same as the rest of them are, but it's just is so intensely political in this country so I mean, they won't even acknowledge in the face of overwhelming evidence that there were human beings in the Americas before 12,000 years ago. I mean, the evidence is is overwhelming that there were people here at least a quarter of a million years ago, at least. Uh, I, I mentioned in my book, uh, per uh, Virginia Mcinty C. Maginza, yeah. You know, and and she was, and still is. You know, well, she began as a university-trained professional specializing in dating um, a, a site, an archaeological site uh, that had uh, had some burning going on, had some fire damage, and she specialized that. And they brought her into a site outside of Mexico City back in the nineteen uh, late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. That's why they brought her in. They'd found a campfire site they couldn't identify. It seemed very old. Of course, the paradigm is nobody in the Americas before 12,000 years ago. So she applied the same scientific regimen that she used every place else, and she was kind of surprised because this campfire site, this man-made campfire site, went back 250,000 years ago. A quarter of a million years ago. So she consulted her colleagues. She had it peer-reviewed, released nothing about it for, it must have been, you know, half a year or so at least. And they all said, no, your testing is all checks out. She sent it back to various laboratories across the United States. Yale was one of them. Said, no, this material uh, is man-made, and it dates back to a quarter million years ago, over and over again. So she finally made her statement. Uh, that this site outside of Mexico City uh, dates competently to two uh, 250 thousand years ago. Uh, the response was so violent on the part of her uh, colleagues in the United States and in Mexico too at that time that her material was confiscated. She was not allowed she was literally not allowed to publish her results. She was hounded from her profession. Uh, so much so that she wound up uh, becoming a florist because she couldn't make a living as an archaeologist. She was so marginalized. And yet, I think about 10 years or a little more after she made her discovery, another site north of Mexico City was found that had the same dating parameters. And this is just an example of the overwhelming physical evidence that has confronted mainstream archaeologists for at least the last 50 years, showing that humans in the Americas go back long before 12,000 years ago. I've been able to to highlight just a few of the incidents. The most remarkable, of course, is the evidence for human beings in the Americas that predates the so-called beginning of human evolution and that is really astounding
0: is now, that humans, the footprints the footprints no, in the that, no. I forget what that type of rock was I th- I actually thought that had some sort of back to to Virginia Steens uh fires to some footprints they had found in some sort of uh, solidified tar sands or something that's
3: correct now they they found some that were there um That's another one, too. That goes back 40,000 years, which is not like her uh, quarter of a million, Mm. but still 40,000. That certainly is long before. And they're definitely footprints. They're definitely human footprints that go back 40,000 years. But the most remarkable of all are the discoveries made, again, by highly qualified university trained professionals of evidence for human beings, persuasive evidence actually uh, unequivocal evidence for human beings in the Americas before the advent of textbook evolution. Like I said, we really began supposedly to evolve about 5 million years ago, and I believe that that is correct, that our line of descent, your line of descent and mine, goes back about 5 million years ago, really to about 2 million years ago to Australopithecus, the first uh, proto-human primate. 2 million years ago, the transition began about 5 million years ago out of the trees. And yet, we're finding evidence uh, for not only human beings being in the Americas, but human beings that had tool-working abilities that go back long before 2 and 5 million years ago. The most astounding of all is the ones, not one, but several sites that have been found in Argentina Again, by university-trained professionals that have never been debunked, that have not not even have been examined, and this is of course goes to the title of my book, that shows evidence of human beings or something like human beings using tools 20 million years ago. 20 million years. Now, I didn't put this in there because it was sensational, or because it was just alternative. I put it in because it's well-documented. I have the names of the people involved and the artifacts and where they still exist. The only conclusion that I'm able to draw from that is that human beings have evolved more than once. I think that we have had precursors that have followed basically the same line of development that we have, and that they've winked out of existence and that we are following that same basic track until we are are here where we are now that's an assumption that is pure theory but nonetheless we have the physical evidence and you know I challenge my readers uh, pro or con to to find out uh, for themselves if this material that I present and of course I've loaded it down with perhaps too many footnotes I try to I try to uh, source every statement that I put in there. It's not enough just to say these things.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be
3: able to back them up. And I refuse to make a statement in there that I can either that I cannot back up, or I cannot at least offer with some kind of uh, theory or a hypothesis. I do not make statements just because isn't this cool or isn't this far out. I think that the truth is is far out enough in itself that doesn't need any amplification
0: so do you think uh do you think it's opening up at all with the advent of things like the internet and and the free flow of information? do you think it's uh we're going to see a change in some of these paradigms
3: most definitely and the change is definitely taking place now. People are beginning to question these things uh even mainstream science it's amazing because when I first started editing ancient American magazine in nineteen ninety three um they The consensus, the general consensus was nobody in the Americas before 12,000 years ago. Absolutely impossible.
2: And that was the Clovis,
3: right? Right. Nobody before the Clovis culture, absolutely. But now they have been willing to admit that, well, perhaps maybe 15,000 years ago. And that's some concession. But if you had said... Uh, back in 1993, no 12,000, you know, could be 15,000. You would have been thrown out on your ear. I mean, that would have been heretical. Now that's become somewhat acceptable, and there are even some mainstream archaeologists are saying they're pushing it to 20,000, and they're not being thrown out of their profession. So it's. I think that we we definitely they're being dragged, kicking and screaming, of course, towards these uh, higher dates. But nonetheless, I think the work of Virginia Steen McIntyre and, uh, McIntyre and, and others are going to show that the, the human occupation of the Americas goes back long before we were led to believe or still taught in the schools. <laughs>
0: I think we'll see. I think we'll see a shift for sure. Like, I, I think back when I was in high school history class, and like when I was getting told shit, I didn't have any other uh, reaction but to accept it. You know what I mean? Like, there was really no other outlet. I was from a small town, so there was a little tiny library. And like, imagine the question some of these history teachers must get today. Like, you've got shows like they're asking if aliens had something to do with it. <laughs> Yeah, And,
3: of course, all they could do is just deny. They don't have any real evidence to to counteract these questions, even about ancient aliens, which I'm not a, a big fan of myself. I mean, it's interesting. As a true scientist, you have to – and a true scientist, by the way, isn't somebody that's got a sheepskin or has been all through college. A scientist is it's just somebody that applies a scientific method and wants to know the truth. That comes from the word wisdom, of course, scientia. You just want to know – so if you're sincerely interested and want to know something, you're a scientist. And But the moment that you, you, you say, oh, something is impossible, the moment that you try to, to prevent any further inquiry into something, I don't care what kind of education these people have, they've abrogated their status as scientists. They are no longer scientists. You have to always keep an open mind. Things can never be uh, completely left off the table. So I mean there's certain you have to be uh discerning in what in the evidence that you pick. I've tried to do that in my book, but I I've, I've uh, discarded none of it because sometimes a discarded piece of evidence will be uh, a crucial piece of evidence. I mean every detective knows that. And that's all that really scientists are. They're just academic detectives. But like I said if a scientist, a so-called scientist or an academic says, "Oh, that's impossible." Well, how many times have we heard that the whole history of of science is the moment that they say something is impossible, the next generation proves that it's completely possible. The generation before uh, the Wright brothers said that heavier than air flight was completely impossible. And uh, what would people think of of the internet today? A hundred years ago, they would have thought it's utterly impossible. Or or the Hubble Space uh, Telescope in the 19th century, utterly impossible. So that's why we can't ever say that even something like uh, alien intervention, I wouldn't say that's in, it's impossible it's It's difficult for me to accept it. I haven't seen enough evidence I don't think, which is all that persuasive, but
0: Yeah, it definitely easy. needs to be taken with a grain of salt. If nothing else, I think uh, I think shows like that are good for at least getting people asking questions.
3: That's correct. that's correct. And they should ask the question. That's when they don't ask the question is that life becomes tragic, you know, just a, an intellectual slave to somebody else's ideas. You know?
2: What I loved about your book was uh, I've been following along here is an unconventional timeline of our human and cultural origins. So it's that, that part you put right in the back there that's got, you know, going back from 20 million years, 9 million years ago, 4 million, then it goes all the way to the pres- present. Yeah, that's that's a great idea.
3: Well, I'm I'm glad that it worked for you. I try to make things as clear as possible. As a writer, that's what I'm constantly asking myself: Is this clear? You know, that that should be the number one goal. I think of of anybody that writes, whether you write for publication or or just even for yourself, is always try to write as clearly as you can. Because writing is communication. You're trying to communicate something. You're not trying to show anybody, you know, how much you know or anything like that, or I think that's, that would be a mistake. So I always try to, to shoot for clarity as much as I can and make this. It's a difficult subject. I mean, we're dealing with huge spans of time, and I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do want to make people think about these things and to, to reconsider them in the light of some really fascinating new evidence that's come up.
0: So... uh plans for uh for another book
3: well the next book uh coming out in october it's called um ancient lost colonies of ancient america and uh i enjoyed putting this one together because it deals with um the various peoples that have come to our continent before 1492 and it begins with the sumerians i could have started i guess with um the Salutrians, the Ice Age people, but i uh, the book is limited uh, word length, of course. and I wanted to begin with a recognized civilization, so I began with the Sumerian impact on South America. and I followed through the ancient Egyptians and how they sailed to the Americas for cocaine. How about that? This was a big outlet for their, their uh, drugs, so they could have their altered states of consciousness. Not in recreational drug taking, we, I don't believe, but for uh, religious purposes. Huh. And then uh, we follow to the Minoans who arrived thought, there. And uh, you, them, you know what? I think them. I
0: remember something about... Did, where, what, who was it who was feeding their uh, sacrifices, cocaine and stuff?
3: Well, the thing is, uh, some years ago, back in the early 1990s, the discovery was made of really copious amounts of cocaine residue in Egyptian mummies, and that this cocaine residue was subsequently examined by some of the uh, leading toxicologists uh, in the world and found out that, in fact, the uh, people who were mummified in life were actually using cocaine, and the cocaine plant then, as now, grows only in uh, Peru, Um, parts of Ecuador and the northern areas of South America. So this is hard evidence for uh, ancient Egyptians sailing to South America specifically for the cocaine plant that they used um, and brought back to, uh, to Egypt. Certainly cocaine has never grown in Africa or North Africa or anywhere within the sphere of influence of the ancient Egyptians. The conclusion of my book, um, Lost Colonies of Ancient America, which, like I say, is coming out in October, is that various peoples came to the Americas for different agendas. They came here for different things. Sometimes they were came here as castaways. They were blown uh, by the misfortunes of the navigation uh, or lack of navigation to our shores. There's evidence of that, the Phoenicians that arrived here. And when they got here, even as castaways, they made quite an impact as you might imagine on the native peoples. And it helped to change their culture and their history. Other people came here as uh, refugees, uh, the, the same way that they still arrive in uh, both Canada and America today. Thinking of the, the Hebrews that uh, left their mark, their unquestionable mark in Tennessee, how remarkable. Uh, There's something that I I talk about called the Bat Creek Stone, which is a Hebrew inscription that has been thoroughly authenticated by not an archaeologist, by a geologist, a leading geologist, Scott Walter, who owns his own uh, award-winning geological laboratory in St. Paul, Minnesota. Matter of fact, I would suggest you get in contact with Scott mm-hmm. Walter since you're going to be going to the Twin Cities. He'd be glad to take you to his tremendous laboratory and discuss with you the the Bat Creek Stone, this Hebrew inscription that is in fact dated to about 128 A.D. And here is hard evidence, unequivocal evidence of a uh, pre-Columbian people from the ancient Near East who. Uh, arrived here in the Americas and were buried in Tennessee, of all places, eastern Tennessee. And yet this this tremendous discovery is not going to change the textbooks because that mainstream archaeologist wouldn't even give it the time of day, would not even look at Scott Walter's evidence. They wouldn't even discuss it. They didn't want to see it. You know, that sort of a mindset totally disqualifies them from any kind of scientific credentials, I don't care what schools they went to, you know, they should you know, go do something more useful, you know, that just, they're just wasting their time. And, uh, but it's a tragedy that these are the people that are in charge of the opinion-forming uh, forces in, in our culture. So that's what this book is, deals with. It deals with the Sumerians and, and um, various people that came here.
2: Do you get into the, the copper mining a little bit more in that book?
3: Uh, Not too much because the copper mining really preceded, for the most part, um, what happened. I did write about the copper mining in a book I wrote called Survivors of Atlantis. And, of course, that's a terrible word to use. You know, that's a a heretical word. You can't use that. But I attribute the copper mining, I feel, to the... uh, a people that were not directly associated with us. the Sumerians, for example. They seem to have made a tremendous impact on South America, as did the ancient Egyptians. The Minoans did appear to have some involvement in the copper mining, but to a lesser degree. I do see the ancient copper miners as a people who preceded the uh, the beginnings of, civiliza- of uh, civilizations, we're told anyway, in the Near East.
2: Oh,
0: okay. I see
3: them as a, as a, a proto-civilized people, yeah.
0: I bet it was the Sumerians that brought the Egyptians the drugs. They always seem like trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you may be right.
2: So where where can, can go? Go ahead. Uh,
3: well, the book is called um, "Lost Colonies of Ancient America," and that will be available uh, at Amazon.com. I'm sure. Um, starting in October. Matter of fact, they already have a, the logo of this tremendous cover they did for it. Gosh, you can take a look at it right now. Um,
0: That's <laughs> actually like a, kind of the theme of Paradigm Symposium. You'd uh, you could probably swing by there and get rid of quite a few books, I'd imagine. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, I, 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 the Paradigm is always really interesting. I have a lot of great speakers there. It'd be really fabulous. Yeah. The cover they did to, the cover artwork for my book. It looks like a poster from a. Hollywood movie. I wish it was. I wish they'd make a movie. on <laughs> It's really a great, wonderful cover. But uh, yeah, it starts with the Sumerians and goes through the Egyptians and the Hebrews and so on. And even the Celts are mentioned in there and uh, go on all the way up to, of course, the Norse and and early Christians and the Templars and all that. And I tried to provide, again, the very best um, factual material available. I don't want to just make uh, wild statements, as I said. I try to back it up with as much uh, reference as I possibly can and actual finds. Like the Back Creek Stone, that's that's a real thing. I mean, here you had not an archaeologist, but a geologist who proved that this could have only been carved because of the weathering on the stone and the mineralization that has taken place could have only been carved uh, not quite two thousand years ago, and that lines up very perfectly with the inscription itself, which says "for Judea" on it. Hmm. That's all the inscription says. It says it's just for Judea, but it's inscribed in a kind of paleo Hebrew that was contemporaneous with the first century A.D. Now, is that really back, remarkable.
1: back
2: Creek or bad?
3: Creek. BAT. B A T. Oh, oh, BAT. Creek. It's uh, okay. in eastern Tennessee. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Huh. How'd you not get that? And it, that's, yeah.
3: that? the inscription, by the way, was found. It was actually excavated by a professional archaeologist with the Smithsonian Institution from Washington, D.C. So this isn't something that somebody faked or uh, they were able to manipulate it somehow. The, the circumstances of its find about 1898. Uh, are unimpeachable.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think actually this book would make a great documentary. Someone should pick it up. It's a, it's like a hot, hot subject right now, too.
3: Yeah, people are, as you said, they're beginning to question uh, what they've been told and what generations of people have been told for so long. This isn't to take away from Christopher Columbus. As a matter of fact, uh, he appears to be even greater than than I suspected because these discoveries made by the Phoenicians and the Egyptians and so on, they were all lost. When classical civilization fell around the end of the 5th century A.D., everything was lost with it. When a civilization collapses, uh, it's it's a major implosion. And so all that knowledge w- was lost. You know, Europe suffered under a dark ages for almost 500 yeah, years. that's crazy. And when, when Columbus came along, there were just hardly more than suggestions, little vague myths and memories of these things. So he had to start really from scratch all over again, although he was not the first outside visitor to the Americas. uh, That doesn't really detract from him at all, because he was starting all over again. He was the first to really establish continuous contact between the old worlds and the new these other peoples, like the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, they were really very selfish in coming here. They did not share information amongst themselves. They had monopolies
0: on the rich,
3: the rich minerals and other uh, natural resources that were here. And they that's why the Phoenicians spread tall tales about, oh, if you go out to sea, uh, the world is flat and you fall off the end of the world. Those things like that were propaganda For the same reason that uh, transnational corporations today uh, guard against industrial espionage. It's the same thing with these cultures uh, back then. We know for certain that the Phoenicians were here, that the Romans were definitely here. But that's not information that they themselves would have wanted to have shared with others because they wanted monopoly on the things like the copper and like the cocaine and all these other things. And and the cotton, too. That's really why the uh, Sumerians came because they loved cotton. They they imported their cotton at a very great expense from India. And now they found that by coming to uh, Peru, they could get it themselves. Sure, it's a long sh- uh, voyage, but nonetheless, that's where they could get lots of cotton. They got cotton, and they wouldn't share that with anybody else. So it's human nature. It's human nature. Have
2: you heard that story about uh, Alexander's uh Grave or body or tomb being... Yeah, uh, Alexander the Great. Right? Alexander the Great's uh, being in America, found in uh, uh, that, America?
3: Uh, that does not appear to check out. I can understand why people would uh, mistake that, though. There is a archaeological site in southern Illinois that has material that would seem to relate to Alexander the Great's time. This material is mostly in the form of uh, black stones that have been engraved with the profiles of men wearing Greek and Roman-style helmets. And people have the three, about 3,000 of these stones, by the way. I've seen a number of them myself. Some of them are very beautifully made. So some people have uh, made it kind of a, an assumption that these portrait stones uh, represent uh, Alexander the Great or his time. They're off by a couple hundred years, several hundred years, actually, these stones, in fact, seem to relate to a Roman colony known as Mauritania. There's a modern country called Mauritania, but it really doesn't bear any resemblance to the ancient Mauritania, which was a a Hellenized and Romanized uh, colony that was on the verge of independence actually as an ally of Rome when a very wicked Pharaoh by the name, a very wicked emperor by the name of Caligula uh, declared war on Mauritania and tried to seize its treasury. And he succeeded in conquering the country. <laughs> Who wouldn't It was a former ally? Um, but he failed to seize its treasury. And it would appear that at least part of that treasury and part of the people associated with it migrated to the Americas. And I wrote a long book on that called uh, The Lost Treasure of King Juba. Oh, that's King what that's Juba's, about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and King Juba is the Mauritanian king associated with uh, this treasury. So that's, uh, I don't see Alexander the Great associated with that, but it's more interesting, suggestive evidence of uh, overseas contacts between uh, the ancient Old World and the Americas. Although that is a very controversial site, very controversial. There's a lot of division on that, and I did not cite that in my most recent book, because i wanted to go for the most credible material and um, this site in southern illinois it's referred to as Burroughs cave yeah right that contains these uh these slate tablets it's they're very interesting they may be totally authentic some of them may be fake it's it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, call to make on that
2: so what about back to you uh before atlantis where can people pick up that book
3: before Atlantis is available. This is, of course, the book we've been discussing mostly tonight.
1: Yeah.
3: It's available from uh, Amazon.com. I imagine that's probably the best place to get it. Or if they, for whatever reason, if they want an autographed copy uh, from me, they can contact me directly. At uh, I can give the uh, the uh, email side out if that's all right.
0: Yeah, that's uh, fine.
3: They can, they can go to www.com. Amazon. Excuse me. www.ancientamerican.com. com. That's all one word, lowercase. ancientamerican.com com. The book is for sale there, and if they specify, I'd be glad to autograph it for them. Some people collect that. I guess because if you got a book by a, a live author, it doesn't mean much. But when he's dead, apparently assumes <laughs> great value. So they can look forward to that eventually. You know. It's an investment. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it's nice to have an autograph book.
3: <laughs> Some people like that, but I appreciate it if people want to get that from me, they can they can get the book from uh, Ancient American, or if they just want to get it uh, right away from Amazon.com, they can get it from Amazon.com too. But there's also a phone number. Come to think of it, it's a toll-free uh, number, twenty is available 24 hours a day. It's eight seven seven. No, it's not a cell phone. This is a a toll-free number for Ancient American. It's uh, 877-494-0044. So Uh you can just call them up and ask for it.
0: Great. Um, Is there any place else our listeners can track you down? Are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that?
3: No, I'm not, as a matter of fact. I'm rather too busy for all that stuff right now. But uh, if they want to get to me at uh, ancient american that that's uh, that's probably the most direct way i i certainly answer all my email correspondence you can just email them directly at uh at ancient american and when you pull that up you'll see a, ver- a number of email addresses and uh you can get in contact with me through any one of
0: those yeah and we'll make sure we uh, link to all of those in the show notes as well um before we let you go is there anything else you want to plug
3: no, I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity of being on. I think you've had some really intelligent questions, and we've had a great discussion tonight, and I, I wish you uh, a really interesting time when you come to the Twin Cities. I know you that you will. I live about uh, two and a half hours away from there, so I hope to be there myself. I hope to, to see you there. Yeah, that
2: would be great. Yeah, that would be great. And
3: it's, yeah.
2: and it's been really fun chatting with you, too. It's, just, it's a fascinating topic. I, I want to get uh, even deeper into it.
3: Well, the, the pleasure has been all mine, and uh, good luck in visiting uh, the sites in Canada, especially Majorville. That's going to be just a really great experience.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And maybe we can have you on uh, after your next book comes out.
3: Oh, I certainly hope. So please keep me in mind for
1: that.
2: Oh, that was our fascinating chat with Frank Joseph
0: Yeah, that went uh, great It was uh, another great chat I wasn't expecting it to go as long as it did But uh, just uh, couldn't really stop it It had a life of its own
2: And again, I, I have uh, all this other stuff I wanted to bring up too Like there was some stuff in his book about maybe the giants Being responsible for some of those uh, megalith building And I don't know, we didn't even get into that but it's a topic that totally fascinates me because I, I I can't wrap my head around the difference between like our mainstream perception of uh, this history and then these alternative views and and this whole global civilization going back like five seven thousand years.
0: Yeah. So uh, once again, you guys can uh, you guys should pick up the book. It's before Atlantis. Uh, we'll link to where to get it in the show notes, and it's. It's a great read. It, like I say, I was expecting to kind of skim through it for the interview, but uh, I found myself kind of engulfed, and I couldn't really put it down. Yeah, me too. Especially the aquatic ape stuff. Like thats I've kind of heard about it before, but I've never really heard the logistics behind it, and he does a really good job of laying it down.
2: Yeah, and my, my favorite part was the, uh, the North American uh, medicine wheel stuff. <laughs>
0: So next week we got uh, Antonio Paris from aerialphenomena.org.
2: Yeah, and uh, we want to also thank uh, Inner Traditions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks to uh, the people at Inter Traditions for putting us in touch with uh, Frank and, and of course, sending us his book for us to read, which turned out to be a, a great book.
2: I'm reading another one uh, from them called uh, Energy Medicine Technologies. We've talked about that a bit on the show. I kind of put that aside for this one, but that one uh, it's really, really
0: good too. Like you're gonna love that one. Yeah, and then there's the Serpo guy too. But that guy, we'll see.
2: Yeah, that's it. That's a that's an interesting one
0: yeah he seems kind of confrontational for our vibe but um yeah so that's uh, about all we got i guess you can send in your questions of course if you've got any for uh, antonio um we're looking forward to that we'll be talking about ufos again uh you got uh, that's about all i got you got anything before we uh nope. cast off here
2: no nope, that's about it just if you want to get a hold of us uh my email is graham at Grimerica.com G-R-A-H-A-M.
0: Yeah, or darren at com, And, of course, hate mail goes to feedback at ca because um, we never check it. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at Grimerica and uh, Grimerica on Facebook yeah, as well. Yeah, we're
2: starting to pay attention to this Facebook thing, so we're going to try and uh, get that going a little bit. So so like us on Facebook and we'll figure out how to to like you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, as always, you'll, we'll have links to all this shit in the show notes. We'll have his website of where to find his books, uh, everything else we talked about, and, of course, all the music. Um, so I suppose that's about it, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week.